Welcome to the five things this week in social. Each week we kick the tires on stories from around the social lot and find you the five best cars. No clunkers here. So that way you can drive off into the sunset with everything you need to know for the week. In the driver's seat this week are Tommy Boyce, and we're happy to introduce Jordane Patrick. Hello, Tommy, and welcome, Jordane. Thanks. It's nice to be here. Hello, hello. Welcome to, this is a boys club this week. Boys night. It sure (laughs) is. Uh, Question for you both. Are you afraid of the driverless car future? Yes. You are? I am. What about you? No. I I love technology. And like, I just feel like as opposed to being afraid of it, just got to embrace it. Like, I think when it's like mass produced and everything, it'll be fine. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Do you think you'll miss driving out on the open road? It's that for me. And also my mind goes to the trolley problem and I don't trust uh, Tesla to solve that for me. Uh, That's why I'm a little bit afraid. Yes, of course. Okay. I'm Joey Scarillo. And for me, nothing compares to a good road trip. All right. Here are the five things. First, Tommy takes the lead story this week. As promised, we would give you an update on Facebook, who is shutting down their podcast platform after less than one year. Then Jordane dives into Twitter, who are testing a close friends feature. Next, Tommy tells us about Instagram, expanding live testing of 90-second reels. Jordane talks about Snapchat's new insight into the potential for brands to connect with audiences. And finally, YouTube introduces live redirect, and Tommy will explain that. Let's kick it off with Tommy and Facebook shutting down their podcast platform after less than one year. So yeah, as you said, Facebook is shutting down its podcast platform less than a year after it launched. Creators will be unable to upload new shows to the service as of this week, and the platform will close altogether on June 3rd, according to a report from Bloomberg News. The move is part of a broader reevaluation of Facebook's audio products. The company is also shuttering the site's soundbites and audio hubs and integrating its live streaming live audio rooms feature, essentially, its Clubhouse clone, favorite phrase of the pod, into its broad broader Facebook Live suite. A Meta spokesperson said that this decision came out of a desire to simplify the company's audio offerings. So this is a bit of an unexpected surprise. And Joey, I'm sure you have, you know, a lot to say. And especially because the audio space was having such, you know, a hot moment since Clubhouse's emergence onto the scene in early 2021. It seems like everyone was getting in on it. And now maybe this is an indication that the space is cooling down and that it doesn't make sense for larger brands or platforms to take part when it isn't already a part of their initial offerings. Facebook famously has caught flack for, well, a number of reasons, but one of them is their canceling of new and shiny features for creators to take advantage of after sort of promising the world, in this case with podcasts. And I think it's important for brands and marketers to have, for lack of a better term, a backup plan when it comes to things like this. I feel bad for people who are really excited to take part of the Facebook podcast platform and now have sort of their up creek without a paddle. And so I guess it just comes back to making sure that you have a sort of all things figured out and a plan of attack when it comes to trying to launch into a new space. And I guess we'll never see uh, five things on Facebook, sadly. Well, I told you so. (laughs) (laughs) You did. I was so apprehensive and so skeptical to put our show on Facebook because I knew that there was 
there was a good chance that this could happen or that Facebook would get bored with the idea of podcasts. They put out a statement that said, podcasts are going away. Podcasts will no longer be available on Facebook starting on June 3rd, 2022. Your existing podcasts will remain available and new episodes will continue to publish until that date. And then they go on and on and on about, we love your stories, blah, blah, blah. But for me, the thing that really stands out is just that statement, podcasts are going away because to be fair and clear, Facebook podcasts are going away. Podcasts are not going anywhere. Just because they didn't work on Facebook's platform does not mean they don't work. And I'm absolutely not surprised that Facebook is sunsetting podcasts so quickly. Jordan, do you, are you surprised by this decision from Big Blue? No, I have to agree. I think that like Facebook has been known to try to take part in everything and copy and buy and just like basically stay as this big like main competitor that can do every and anything as opposed to like doubling down and bettering the features that people love on Facebook from the jump. And it's just funny, like if you think of where Facebook started all those years ago and like what it was mainly for, it was like connection and interaction and how it's turned into this, like just how can we make the most money? And if it doesn't like, if we can't monetize it, then we'll get rid of it or we'll try it or whatever. And this is not, I mean, Facebook is one of the main culprits, I guess, of this, but in like the tech industry, I feel like it's really big for everyone to try to copy and do what everyone else is doing when it's like, just focus on what you're good at. And like, if you better that and focus on like that specific thing and like that audience, like what everyone says, it's like the whole jack of all trade situation. And obviously that's not the full quote, but I feel like in this specific instance, it makes more sense to just focus on what you're good at and deal with the things that people like on your platform and that it's known for as opposed to trying to do every and anything. Yeah. Tommy, I, I feel like I might need to be fact-checked on this a little bit, but I do recall that these features came out around the same time that... Twitter was starting to get into social audio. And I wonder if it was, again, a little bit of that, like, well, we got to jump on board in this audio space. Do you feel that from Facebook here? I definitely do. I think also you have to go back to how, I mean, how many times we said the phrase Clubhouse clone on this podcast, it was the space to be. And so it makes sense, you know, the largest company for social platforms wants to get in on the action without maybe having a real reason to do so. And now we're seeing sort of the effects from that. So I definitely think it's like, oh, everyone else is getting in on it. We have money. Let's do it without actually thinking of maybe the follow through. Yeah. And and the last point I'll make on this too, right, is from first off, this was only available in the U.S. This was not available uh, globally. And people who listen to podcasts generally have their platform already, whether that's Spotify or Apple or one of the other podcast platforms. And so for Facebook to just jump in and be like, use us, use us, it wasn't a sustainable model. And now it shows. But podcasts are not going anywhere, despite what Facebook says. Okay, so let's jump over to Twitter. Jordan, let's talk about Twitter, who is testing the close friends feature. Yeah, so Twitter is testing and unveiling to a broader audience Twitter circles. So basically, Twitter circles will let users pick up to 150 people to join their circle, including followers and non-followers. Then when they feel like tweeting without sharing to the masses, they simply pull up the choose audience menu while writing a tweet and choose Twitter circle instead of everyone. And then according to Twitter, this is different from its communities, which also hide tweets away in an attempt to prevent context collapse. Basically, people getting confused about if they're trying to 
just send messages to a specific audience to talk about this one specific thing and getting jumbled up in all of the other tweets. But yeah, this feature is really interesting because it's one of the additional ways that Twitter has been trying to give people the option to curate these audiences and do what they can with them. And the communities feature is interesting where it's like you can literally be part of specific communities like design or tech or whatever the case is. But this is a little bit more nuanced and it's very similar to like Instagram private stories or Snapchat private stories where users can go through and fully select who they want to see these particular tweets. I think it's an interesting feature. In the article, the person goes on to talk about though that this feature rather is very similar to just being able to send DMs to a specific person and curate it that way. So they didn't really think that it made all that much sense. But I, I kind of disagree. I feel like, like, yeah, DMs are a very specific type of message, just like you can send messages on Instagram or Snapchat. But like being able to upload to this, it's like a more stream of conscious type of thing. So I feel like a more curated in this, as, as far as Twitter circles, is giving exclusive access to your stream of consciousness. That's not like, it doesn't have to be like a DM or a perfectly curated, like this is a message between us or a couple of people. So I feel like it's an interesting feature that can make Twitter a little bit more interesting. Last year, this is similar to a feature that they introduced called Facets, which basically allowed Twitter users to segment their own profiles. And they could have like, if Tommy had a page, it could be like Tommy for Facets, and Tommy for like at work and whatnot. And like you, when you sent specific tweets, it would go to that specific facet of your timeline. And what happens is people would be able to follow that specific feed. But this is a little bit different because you're just controlling who's automatically seeing these. Like it's, it's all these features are kind of similar, but the biggest takeaway is that Twitter is increasingly trying to give people control over their conversations and how they're moderated. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested to know what you guys think about these additional features. I've seen some of the people that I follow very excited about this feature. Tommy, I'm wondering if this is something you'll use. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I've already seen it wreak havoc on my timeline in a really fun way. Sometimes you don't always want to unleash all your thoughts to all the void. And I think Twitter, the name of the game for them is, especially with the Elon of it all, is trying to get new audiences and just new users on board. And so being able to tweet just a subsection of your user base and following base, that to me is very attractive. I think it will be great for maybe you just want to tweet something to like 20 of your friends or just 20 people and just tweet solely to them and see funny content on your timeline. This is a perfect user case for that sort of scenario. I think this actually will do great for encouraging new users. And we've seen the success from Instagram's close friends. And I think Instagram already was having, you know, a large audience base. I think adopting that feature as a way to attract users will be pretty successful for them. Yeah. The way you described it kind of reminded me of the be real of Twitter. Yeah. Right. You know, just having sort of uncurated, a little bit more organic content for your close friends. All right. Let's jump over to Instagram. We just mentioned it. So Tommy, tell us a little bit about what they're testing out with these 90 second reels. Yeah. So it looks like Instagram is expanding the reels time limit, which is great. The platform is testing out 90 second reels. Some users are now seeing the option to create reels of up to a minute and a half long, giving you an extra 30 seconds on top of its current 60 second limit. So Instagram has stated also that the update is not yet being rolled out to all users and that it's only in testing with no official plan for a broader expansion just yet. So obviously this is aligned with Instagram's doubling down with their focus on video and consolidating all of their video formats around Reels, which we've been talking about for the past, like what? six months or so, it's kind of the name of the game for Instagram. I think this news is great in that it gives real creators more time to experiment and make great content. I mean, we've seen TikTok has had three minute long videos available to all users for a while now and even 10 minute videos. And so it makes sense that Instagram is following in their footsteps. 
I do want to highlight a fun fact that Reels now makes up more than 20% of all total time that people spend on Instagram. So this feature is popular and people are using them. So, you know, Reels might be sort of a TikTok clone, but at least a successful clone. So I think we'll see Instagram continue to leverage the Reels tool and make it as watchable and usable for creators and brands as possible. Yeah, it's, it, for me, it feels like the abyss. It's the black hole of Instagram. As soon as I fall into Reels, I'm stuck there for a long time. I'm curious, Jordan, do you think brands will engage with these longer reels? Probably. I feel like brands, like a lot of other companies, are willing to jump on like just about anything that they can use to get their content out there. For the most part, what I've seen a lot of brands and people do as well is take content that they'll shoot for TikTok and just use it to cross-pollinate and post on Instagram reels. So the additional time will allow those efforts to be even more expanded and just give them another platform to produce these more visual forms of content that they're already working on. So I definitely do think that companies will adopt this feature. Yeah, it's almost, I wonder if uh, if Instagram had brands in mind when they extended the, the time limit. All right, let's jump over to Snapchat now. Jordan, tell us about their new insights into the potential for brands to connect with audiences in the app. So Snapchat is actually really having quite a bit of a comeback year. They've reported earlier at the end of Q1, over 319 million daily active users. And what they're basically doing now is in addition to really pivoting and focusing on them being a camera company and like focused on like AR technologies, they want to show brands and interested parties that people use Snapchat because they can be like their most free selves. They can be, it's very personal. It's more connected. Unlike a lot of other platforms that have like a timeline or something, it's more so like, here's this picture of posting what I'm doing or this video that I'm adding to the story. They had a couple of key stats. 87% of users agree that they can be fully themselves on Snapchat, which is very interesting, especially when we start to consider how people are viewing social media and how they affect mental and emotional well-being. Also, 82% of users actively engage with brands, which is very, very big on any platform, because I feel like a lot of us have just been programmed to just scroll through past ads and whatnot. So the fact that they have this many users engaging with brands is very interesting. And then they also came out with like this little survey that's basically like, how likely are people to buy something on Snap? And there's like basically a fill in a blank situation. So it's like, if I discover new brands on Snapchat, then I am 1.9 times more likely to buy. If I try a branded filter on Snapchat, then I'm 1.8 times times more likely to buy and they have a couple more of these features but Snapchat has really been focusing on these branded filters these AR technologies and basically presenting them in a way that clients and like brands can use them to better reach audiences they had a summit earlier this week where they basically explained all these new features that are coming out and how brands can tap into features you can utilize Snapchat software directly in your own platforms based on the camera to do things like trying on clothes or like creating certain filters or like all, all these different things that are really making it easier for people to play with AR and tap into that space. So I think like Snapchat is nice because unlike a lot of other companies that were like, how can we just buy or change or develop this new product or whatever, they really bunkered down and focused on what they were good at and it's starting to pay off for them. I'm interested to think, especially like Tommy, you've been talking a lot about Be Real. Do you see like the similarities or how do you think like Snapchat will be able to compete with something like Be Real? I think the difference between Snapchat and Be Real is that Be Real is a short sort of burst of insight 
and entertainment. It's like, oh, look at my friends are doing. This is great. Some of them are at work. Some of them are not at work. What's going on there? Snapchat's sort of our video diary. It's where we put our updates several times a day. It's where we film our nights out. It's for our memories. And so I think that Be Real is great for a behavioral insight sort of scenario in terms of seeing how people want to be sincere and genuine online the way they're not able to on Instagram and Facebook. I think Snapchat though also, we talk with this, scratches that same itch. It's where people really connect. And I think a big takeaway I got from this report is that people are happier on Snapchat than on any other app on social right now, which that to me is like, if you can quantify that people are happier on your app than on others, I think you've made it. I think Snapchat is such a really powerful tool. We talked last week about how they've seen a huge growth in their user base. And so to me, it's just that I think it's a different way to the same venue. And Snapchat just has more ways of getting there. And right now, more space will the only space for brands to get in currently on the ground floor and connect people that way. Because Be Real, so far, does not have a way that brands can really interact with yet. So Snapchat kind of has it sort of all in one. I think it's true about the happiness thing on Snapchat because you are curating your own you're curating what you see, right? You're talking to your friends. You're not getting an algorithm saying like, you might like this post or you might want to see this article. And so to me, that absolutely makes sense. I am interested too a little bit about what you guys think of the ad experience and for brands specifically on Snapchat uh, from a user point of view. Like I find that, you know, the things like the filters are really fun to play around with, but sometimes I'm a little turned off by if I watch the content on Snapchat, like the weird ad breaks. So I'm just kind of wondering, like, what do you guys think of the two different experiences for the users? I like the fact that they're completely separate. So like the actual user experience, like if you swipe left or swipe right, then you see all like the brands and the ads and everything like that. But if you swipe over to like where your friends are and everything, you just see your messages and whatnot. And like up top, like at the stories, like I, it's not in, as intrusive as on, on a lot of platforms. And I think that's what also adds to the happiness because it's like you kind of have to, you're choosing, it's like your own own, like it's your buy-in if you want to see these things and whatnot. It's not getting in my way. So, and for the times that like I do end up watching like a Snapchat Mashable, they're almost always interesting. But yeah, I like the fact that there's that separation and it's not in your face. Yeah, you have to, you, it's almost like you have to choose to watch it versus like Reels, which is like trying to get you back into Reels yeah, constantly exactly. through, your, through your feed. No, that that is an interesting point. Although I do find that content tends to be uh, much longer and, you know, it's always like... Like it's a little, I don't know, sometimes some of it's very entertaining. Sometimes I find it a little bit uh, clickbaity. It's like, mm -hmm. watch this thing that this person did. And then you're watching it for like what feels like an hour. And then the thing is not very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> but the buying power also I found very interesting in this article, just as we talk about platforms and, and shoppable experiences. Have either of you experienced uh, shopping on Snapchat? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. And I think there's a thing that Snapchat users are three times more likely than the average user to purchase on the app, which again, W for Snapchat in this yeah. regard. So I definitely have bought stuff from Snapchat. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, let's jump into our fifth and final thing. We're talking about YouTube Live introducing live redirect. Tommy, why don't you break that down for us? Okay, so this might take some setting up. So a few years ago, YouTube added live redirects as a way for creators to hold live streams that ended by pointing viewers to another video on their own channel. Like so for premiere events, BTS engage fans by showing off a new music video and then redirecting them after to another one of their videos like Butter to Dynamite or something like that. So now YouTube actually has adjusted live redirects so that live streamers 
viewers on the service can bounce their audience to another live stream from a different channel when they go offline. And so on Twitch, this behavior actually exists and has been a part of the platform for a while, and it's called a raid. And raids are, again, very common behavior. I've seen them all the time. It's a great way for people to grow audiences and help find new content. But it has also led to harassment on the platforms with things called hate raids, which basically target you know marginalized streamers with abuse from hundreds of accounts just pouring in all the time. And you can't really fend off those comments when they're just a wave of it just taking over you. So it looks like YouTube actually took note of the issues that Twitch has struggled to contain with hate raids and is launching live redirects with settings that could make sort of bot-fueled or user-fueled harassment, something that streamers don't actually have to worry about as much. So on Twitch, by default, channels are set to allow raids from anyone, but YouTube from the start has live redirects can only point to channels that subscribe to the streamer or that have explicitly added to the channel on an allowed list. So in addition, only channels with more than 1,000 subscribers and no active community guideline strikes can send a live redirect. So only, only good eggs. Now that the feature is live, we'll be able to see how users take advantage of this. I think that the story is great. One, due to the fact that YouTube is trying to create a more hospitable and less sort of hate-filled environment for its live streamers. But two, this goes to show that YouTube is really investing in its live streams and trying to make it a core part of their platform. I don't think they're going to pull a Facebook and take down their live stream feature, you know, in a couple months or so. They know how powerful live streams are as a tool to connect with audiences and reach new audiences. And they're trying to take full advantage of this feature. So I think that if brands and marketers already haven't started to look towards YouTube live streams as a new way to make content and interact with people, they should start doing so. It's a really exciting and interesting way to sort of make content, break barriers, and just find new ways of making online and one-to-one -one live connections work for you. Yeah, I don't participate in a lot of streaming. I don't really watch Twitch very often. So this is all very new to me, very interesting. But what I do appreciate is it sounds like that YouTube is really making a push towards safety for the for the streamers. And I think that is really interesting. Jordan, do you participate on Twitch and YouTube live and in these platforms that stream? Not a ton, but like occasionally here and there. And I, I, I've heard about the raids on Twitch. So I do think, and we like just talked about like big companies or like big tech companies copying other features or whatnot. And I feel like this is an example of how to do it well and how to do it in a good way because they took this feature that already exists on Twitch and they were like, okay, well, this is why it's not working for you guys. Here's how we can make it work for us and improve that experience. And by adding that value, it makes them more competitive in that space because they're already doing something that's like users can really use and feel safe and more comfortable and benefit from. So I think that as opposed to just like, hey, how can we like take this new feature and how can we just like do it ourselves? Really thinking about the user experience and focusing on what would be best for the people that is intended for, I think goes a long way. And you can see here, this this really does have the potential to pay off. Right. So instead of a clone, it's like we made it a 2.0. We made exactly. it even, even better. Yeah. Excellent. Well, fellas, this has been so fun. Welcome again, Jordan. This was amazing having you on. If you don't already, be sure to follow us, share us, write to us. If you've got questions, comments, concerns, points of interest, or complaints, send those over to podcasts at gray.com. Again, 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 I want to thank Tommy and Jordan for joining us, Danielle and the crew at Gramercy Park Studios behind the scenes for making us sound great every week. We've been in person today. So again, very exciting to all be in a room together. And thank you, listener. We will see you next time. And in the meantime, be social. The Five Things are written and researched by the Social and Connections team at Gray New York. Produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin and Amanda Fuentes. With post-production support from Ned Martin. 
Additional support by John Jenkinson, Christina Hyde, and Liz McGovern. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.